Well, this is the last message in our series, Five Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. So far, we've considered love your enemies, and then it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Then, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then last week, deny yourself. Now, I'm, I'm sensitive to critics of this series. Uh, this is one that's come to my attention. One day recently, Pastor Chris was driving past the church, and uh, his eight-year-old son, Ben, saw the sign out front advertising the series. Here's the conversation that followed. Ben, Dad, I do not like that sign. Chris, really? Why not? Dad, are you kidding me? Look at what it says. Dad, listen, Jesus is our Lord and we should respect what he says. <laughs> so, so, I've been put in my place, but we're still going to finish the series. This morning, it's the words of Jesus, I am the only way. Maybe the one that, that most people have difficulty with, particularly those of other faiths or of no faith. So we're going to start by looking at the context of Jesus' statement, some similar statements in scriptures, and then, and then we're going to examine the issue. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 14, if you grab a Bible in front of you, page 1146. John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room, having celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And he says to them, starting at verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now turn over to the next book, to the book of Acts chapter 4. The event of Passover, uh, of Pentecost has occurred. God has given his spirit now to indwell his followers. Um, Peter and John went up to the temple and there they saw a crippled man who was healed uh, in the name of Jesus. And then, and then we come to chapter 4, verse 5. It says, On the next day there were rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, 
in the midst, they inquired, by what power and, or by what name did you do this? That is the healing. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's look at one other passage. Uh, turning on in your New Testament to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, page 1263. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Notice what Paul writes. I'm going to start reading at verse 5 of 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. How do we answer people who object to those statements? How, how do we have confidence ourselves with the truth of these claims of exclusivity? I know our, some of our young people are with us this morning. They're not next door on the fifth Sunday. Um, let me just say, you will be challenged regarding this statement by friends, by classmates, by roommates in college, by professors in classrooms, by the videos that you watch, by the books you read. And how you respond to such criticism and even ridicule will be determined by the depth of your conviction of the truth of Jesus' statement. So let's, let's step back and let's look at the issue from a need basis. I have to say that in general, I, I think most people want to be good. They want to do good. At the heart of every religion is this moral and ethical desire for goodness. It's a desire of most every person and every religious system. Let me illustrate. Uh, among the basic tenets of Buddhism are these, to refrain from evil, to do good, to purify the mind. One of the five basic tenets of Islam is life on earth, that life is here is just a test. It's, it's a preparation for the eternal life to come. The faithful are those who adore Allah, who praise the prophet Muhammad, who obey the Quran doing good deeds and fulfill the five pillars of Islam. Hinduism lacks any unified system of beliefs and ideas, uh, but they believe in idol worship, in reincarnation, karma. Some of the moral ideals in Hinduism, if you read their literature, include nonviolence, truthfulness, friendship, compassion, fortitude, self-control, purity, and generosity. You see, every religious system has an emphasis of doing good, of being good. And every system sets up a reward system, a reward of eternal bliss, if you are good enough. The issue 
And the idea is then at death, your life is weighed in the balance. And so I think all of the good things that I've done in life then are put into one basket, one bucket on one side of the scale. All the bad things that I've done are put on the other. And then whichever way the scale tips determines my ultimate destiny. You know, there are a lot of people in America today, even in churches, who believe that this is the way they're going to be judged. But here's the $64,000 question. Can anyone be good enough? This is the problem. This is the inadequacy of religion because you have to answer the question, what's the standard? Is it simply to conform to a list of rules and, and regulations and principles and tenets and dogma? Is it living up to my standards or to the standards of somebody else? But what if there is a God who is absolutely perfect and he sets the standard? That's what Christianity teaches. It's the teaching of the Bible. That there is a God who is absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, and absolutely just. There's a God here as a self-existent creator of all things who has defined not only what is the standard, but what is good enough. I want you to look at some of the things that the scriptures declare. They can be a bit disconcerting, eye-opening. The Apostle Paul, quoting from the Hebrew scriptures, says in Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Bummer. Um, in the same chapter in the letter of Romans, Paul makes this remarkable sweeping statement as to the moral nature of every person. He writes in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the words in the Hebrew Old Testament for sin is a word picture. And it's a picture of an archer who draws the bowstring back with the arrow, releases the arrow, the arrow flies and it falls short of the target. That's what sin is. We fall short of the mark, of the target. And as a result, every one of us falls then under the judgment of our sin. And this God who set the standard, which is perfection, has also declared the penalty, the consequence of our sin, of our failure to meet the standard. And so Paul writes about this penalty for sin when he says, for the wages of sin is death. Now think about this. Death simply means, in essence, separation. In physical death, there's a separating of the body from the soulish part of a person. So the death that Paul is talking about here is spiritual death. It's a spiritual separation from God. That's the consequence of sin. And the reality is that every one of us, every human being ever born on earth falls under this judgment because we've all sinned. If we're all guilty of sin, and must suffer the consequences of sin, there's an emotion that results from this sobering realization. It's despair. 
if there is no solution. If sin is real and that in, I am then guilty before a holy God, I am really in a dilemma. And that's why we need a solution. Christianity declares that the solution to man's predicament is found in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. This is what set, sets Christianity apart from all the other living religions of the world. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and little would change. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and it was essentially the same. You have the same moral code of conduct that governs its followers that's based upon living a good life and doing good things. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, there's nothing left. Because you see, Christianity is not essentially a philosophy. It's not an ethnic, an ethic. It's a personal relationship with a living, resurrected Savior through whose death sin has been dealt with. Now, there are three things about Jesus that form the basis for such a statement like this. Jesus is the only way. He's the only solution. And I realize I'm not plowing new ground for many, probably most of you here, but we need to be reminded of these truths regularly. They need, need to be so important for the foundation of our faith that we need to be mindful of those. So let me suggest these three. The first is the uniqueness of Jesus' life. There are several things about his unique life that calls for our attention. The first is prophecy. 1,500 years of biblical history spoke of a coming Messiah. Only in the Bible do you have such a body of predictive literature. Jesus fulfilled 333 of these specific prophecies in his first coming. You know what the probability of this one person fulfilling eight of those major prophecies? It's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one plus 17 zeros. I love his book. I've shared it before. Peter Stoner, the book is Science Speaks, but he illustrates the significance of this by saying that if you took 10 to the 17th power number of silver dollars, they would, and spread them out over Texas, they'd cover the state two feet deep. And if you were to take one of those silver dollars and mark a red X on it and mix it in over the entire state of Texas, the and then take a person, blindfold them, put them anywhere you want in Texas and say they can go anywhere within the confines of Texas and they have one pick, the probability that they would pick that one silver dollar marked with a red X is one in 10 to the 17th power. Could just anybody fulfill these prophecies? The second thing are miracles. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus performed miracles that confirmed the fact that he was who he claimed to be, Messiah. Uh, John, a cousin of Jesus, was selected by God to be the forerunner, the one who would announce the coming of Messiah. He preached a gospel of repentance and preparation for the coming Christ. His message was very simple, repent for the kingdom of God is on hand. And then Jesus asked John to baptize him in the river Jordan. Time went on and John was imprisoned by King Herod because John had spoken out against the king's immorality. 
And John sends a delegation to Jesus to inquire whether he is Messiah that was to come or should they look for another. Here's Jesus' reply to John's question. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dread are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, the miracles that I do bear witness to my uniqueness. They give evidence that I truly am the Messiah that was promised long before. There's one other thing, I think, about the uniqueness of Jesus that we ought to know, and that's the effects. There are the effects of his life that point to his uniqueness. I love, uh, I love of a piece I got introduced to long ago, uh, and you maybe have heard it, but it's, it's an essay titled One Solitary Life. It was actually adapted from a sermon given by Dr. James Allen Francis in The Real Jesus and Other Sermons, published in 1926 almost 100 years ago. But here's what he wrote. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he's a centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And how true it is if you're a reader of history. The uniqueness of Jesus' life. Then there is the audacity of Jesus' claims. Jesus made some extraordinary claims. In fact, one could rightly say they are audacious. No other person made such stupendous claims that he did. He claimed to be the Son of God, God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, that he was the only way to God. He claimed to have the power to forgive sins, to be able to give someone eternal life. And the people who heard him speak understood what he was saying. They understood what he meant. They understood what was at stake. Let me just illustrate. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father, that is God, are one. And what was the response of the people who heard him say that? They picked up stones to stone him. Wow. 
And Jesus says to the crowd, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And what they answered tells me that they fully understood the import of what Jesus was saying. They said, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus made the outright claim that he was God, equal to God. He would later say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Another claim of deity. And then we have to add this audacious claim that Jesus made. It's the subject of what we're talking about this morning in John 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, then he is stating God's solution to our sin. Is it narrow-minded? Very. Extraordinarily. Extremely. But you see, that's not the question. The question is this. Is it true? Is there grounds upon which he can stand and make those statements? Well, that's for us to discover. Here's the third thing. You don't have to listen to Pastor Chris very long, and this comes up. It's the veracity of Jesus' resurrection. It's the truthfulness of this historical event. This event, Jesus being raised from the dead, is the most central, compelling, distinguishing truth of Christianity. And it is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Of the four living world religions that are based on personalities rather than just a philosophical system alone, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. Abraham, the father of Judaism, died around 1900 BC. There's no resurrection claimed for him. Wilbur Smith writes, the original accounts of Buddha never ascribed to him any such thing as a resurrection. In fact, in the earliest accounts of his death, we read that when Buddha died, it was, quote, with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. Muhammad died on June 8, 632 AD, at the age of 62 at Medina, where his tomb is visited annually by thousands upon thousands of devout Muslims. All the millions and millions of Jews and Buddhists and Muslims agree that their founders never came out of the earth in a resurrection. And yet, the scriptures prophesied that Jesus the Messiah would be raised from the dead. When he was here on earth, Jesus himself foretold his resurrection. And his followers went about in the first century declaring that Jesus was not dead. He was not in the tomb, but he was alive. They proclaimed a risen Christ, not a dead prophet. Michael Green, in his book, Man Alive, makes the point well. He writes, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squib with his execution. 
Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it, and you've disposed of Christianity. Christianity is an historical religion. It claims that God has taken the risk of involving himself in human history, and the facts are there for you to examine with the utmost rigor. They will stand any amount of critical investigation. The New Testament documents, if we have to say a word about those, were all written within 70 years of Jesus' death. We possess over 14,000 manuscript portions of the New Testament, some dating back to the early 2nd century. So if you're going to dismiss the reliability of those documents as first-hand historical accounts, then you must, in fairness, dismiss all other writings of antiquity because there are no documents of the ancient world that are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament is. You'd have to throw out the writings of people like Thucydides, Herodotus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristotle, Plato. In honesty, to be intellectually fair, you'd have to throw them all out. Unless you can believe, based on that same application of evidence, that these documents are reliable to when they were written down. So the Gospel accounts sets the scene for us. Let's walk through it. Jesus was dead. They say that after he died, a soldier took a spear and shoved it up into his side, piercing the heart, out came water and blood, a clear medical sign of death. Jesus' body was prepared for burial. In accordance with Jewish tradition, his body was wrapped with linen cloth, and then about 100 pounds of aromatic spices mixed together to form a gummy substance were applied to the wrapping. So Jesus was basically in a cocoon, a hardened cocoon. Third, the body was placed into a tomb. This was a borrowed tomb that had been carved out of solid rock, and a large stone was rolled down in front of the entrance to the tomb. We know from history that large stones weighing approximately two tons were normally rolled down by way of levers. The next thing is the tomb was guarded. The historical account tells us that a Roman guard, a strictly disciplined fighting men, were stationed to guard the tomb. Fear of punishment kept the soldiers awake, alert, ready for anything. The tomb was sealed. This Roman guard affixed on the tomb the Roman seal, the stamp of Roman authority and power. The seal was meant to, to deter any vandals from the tomb because anyone trying to remove the stone from the entrance to the tomb would have broken the seal, would have incurred the wrath of Roman law. But something happened. The tomb was empty, an historical fact of history. Jesus' followers said he'd been raised from the dead. The empty tomb is that silent testimony to the resurrection of Christ that has never been refuted. Well, many theories have been suggested over the centuries, but not one of them has a ring of truth or is demonstrated to be a viable alternative explanation to the disappearance of Jesus' body. You know, there just aren't many alternative possibilities. If you're to disprove Christianity, you must disprove the resurrection. You must have an explanation for the empty tomb. Now, many have set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ, but no one has. 
One who tried, I love this one, was Lew Wallace. Wallace was a Civil War general, a literary genius. He was also an avowed atheist. For two years, he studied in the leading libraries of Europe and America, seeking information uh, for writing a book that would forever destroy Christianity. While he was writing the second chapter of his book, in his own words, he found himself on his knees crying out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Because of the solid, irrefutable evidence, he could no longer deny that Jesus was the Son of God. Wallace went on later to write probably one of the greatest novels ever written concerning the time of Jesus, Ben-Hur. Love that movie. The resurrection of Jesus certifies as true all of his claims, including his claims to be God in the flesh. And it also means then that his teaching is instructive to you and to me today. Because if we would desire to know God, if we would desire to experience forgiveness for the things that we've done are wrong, if we would desire to know what our ultimate destiny, what lies on the other side of death, then we must believe in Jesus Christ. We have to stop trying to be good as the basis of salvation and admit that there's nothing that we can do that is good enough that God should let us into his heaven. Our sin is too grave. The penalty is too great. The only solution is hope in Christ. So where does that leave us? Our desire is to do good, is to be good. But when we honestly face the fact of our sin and the consequences that come, unless we can figure out something else, despair is the only emotional response that ultimately comes from that. So we need to discover the truth that God himself has done something about the problem, that in the work and person of Christ, he's dealt with the issue of sin. And then finally, we have to decide what we'll do with Jesus. C.S. Lewis, was a professor when he was a professor at Oxford University, was an agnostic. He denied that Jesus was God, that he was divine. Eventually, he too studied the evidence for Christ. A lot of it was on the walks. When we were in England last year, we walked on the path outside Magdalen College where he walked with Tolkien and probably is when he really wrestled with this issue of who Christ is. But he became a devoted follower of the risen Christ. In his book, Christianity Today, which, by the way, is a, is a great one to give friends that are searching, that are questioning, uh, he makes this statement. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, how do we walk away from that this morning? Well, you're in one of two camps this morning. Either you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, and that's probably true of most of you here this morning, or, or even all of you, in which case this just helps us to build that solid foundation upon which our faith is. We don't have the answer to every question that's raised about our faith and about our world in which we live, 
But we can have confidence in this, which lies at the foundation of it, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that putting your trust in him is the only way of salvation. That, that's the assurance we need to continue to remind ourselves and build into our thinking. But if you're here this morning and have never done that, maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe today you walked in for the first time, maybe you've heard it over and over again, it hasn't sunk in, but you realize that you have to make a choice. Not to choose is to choose. And so you have to decide, will I believe in this one who claimed was raised from the dead or not? And then on both sides, we live with the consequences of what we've chosen to believe. Well, would you join me in prayer as we close? If you happen to be a person here this morning that can't say with full assurance that if you were to die today, you'd spend eternity in heaven, but you understand the good news, the message of the gospel, which is what we talked about this morning, Jesus died for you and you want to put your trust in him, would you just in the quietness of your heart talk to him, tell him, acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you stand under his judgment because of your sin, and that you give up any other way to try to gain salvation but trust in the work of Jesus? And would you just invite him to come into your heart, to forgive your sins, to give you eternal life? And if you did that, would you thank him that he's heard your prayer? Whether you feel anything or not, his truth, his word is what's important. He promised that he would come to live within you. Father, I pray that each one of us would have the confidence of knowing that if something were to happen to us, we would be transported immediately into your presence. We know that our sins are forgiven in Christ, that he has called us to live a life pleasing to you, and Lord, you empower us through your Holy Spirit who lives within us. May the truths that we've talked about this morning guide our hearts and our minds. May they give us the confidence that we have for the future. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.